And so let us hear God's word from John 20, beginning in verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. The grass withers, the fire fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. All right. Well, as we uh, come now here uh, this morning, we return to our study of John. And you recall a few years ago, we decided to uh, make a change and focus on the resurrection at the 11 o'clock service, not just at the sunrise. And uh, over the years, I've uh, looked at Matthew's account, Mark's account, Luke's account. We've, of course, looked at 1 Corinthians 15. And uh, I had not looked at John's account, though. And so a couple years ago, started looking at it. And we we did verses 1 to 10 here a couple years ago. And uh, here, you recall, this is where Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb. John focuses his attention on her. And she sees that the tomb is empty and runs and tells Peter and John about that. So they then run to the tomb, see that it's empty, and uh, basically everybody's confused. Then last year, we looked at verses 11 to 18. And here Jesus then appears to Mary Magdalene. And at first, she doesn't recognize him, but then he makes himself known to her. And she does uh, see him, believes, and so forth, and then runs to tell the disciples. Now, as I've said at different times, as we compare Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it can be hard sometimes to know exactly how all things fit together because each of them say the same things, but each of them say some different things too. There are no contradictions, but uh, sometimes it's hard to know how it fits. So John here in verses 1 to 18 has been spending all this time on Mary, and we just have a very little information that we read in in, uh, Mark just a, a few moments ago. Well, in this section in John, uh, actually, there's several things that we see connected in Luke 24, and we'll uh, look at that here in in just a moment. So let's look then at verse 19 and uh, start with this verse today. So then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, peace be with you. All right. Well, first of all, Notice it says this is the same day. In other words, the day Jesus rose from the dead. It's not the next day or whatever. This is the same day, uh, the first day of the week. And then it says here it's at evening. Now, you remember in Israel, they counted their day from sundown to sundown. We, of course, go midnight to midnight. So it must not be sundown yet. It's evening, but not sundown. So it's still Sunday, not yet Monday. And so Jesus comes here on the day he rose from the dead. And notice how John is giving some of these eyewitness details, very specific in what he says here. All right, now, he says this is the first day of the week. Now, let's, let me just pause here for a moment and talk about this issue of uh, the change 
of the Sabbath day to the Lord's day. You know, from the very beginning in Genesis 2, we see on the seventh day of the week that God rested from his labors. And from that time until the resurrection of Christ, the day of rest was Saturday, the Sabbath. And so throughout the week, they would work and they would look forward to that day of rest at the end of the week. Okay. And that then corresponded to what they were doing in regard to the Messiah. They were working, looking for the Messiah to come who would bring them rest. Well, now that the Messiah has come and he has done the works of obedience for us because he rested perfectly on the Sabbath day in the tomb and then rose from the dead on Sunday, this then changes the day of rest from Saturday now to Sunday, from the Sabbath to what we might call the Christian Sabbath or the Lord's Day. And so, as I've talked about in Romans here recently, the resurrection is the turning point in history. And one of the things we change is when we worship. And so now we do it on Sunday. And so, as Israel worked looking forward to the Messiah coming, we now start with the day of rest here on the first day of the week. And then we go out and we work the rest of the week looking back to the rest that Jesus has given and provided for us. Now certainly Israel looked back to the creation and we look forward to the coming of Christ and our eternal rest, but this is our weekly pattern. We start with rest, the rest Jesus has provided, and so therefore we go forth and we work for him. All right, now there are some other places here. I'll just reference them briefly, but uh, think of Acts 2 at Pentecost. <clears throat> that happened on Sunday. And then we have in Acts 20, remember when Paul was preaching all night and the kid fell asleep and fell out the window and so forth? Well, that was on Sunday. Um, maybe most telling are two passages in 1 Corinthians 16. Paul was collecting money to, from the churches there to send back to Israel for the people in need. And he tells them in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 2, collect it on Sunday when you get together. Now, if they're already getting together on the Sabbath, why would they then get together the next day on Sunday? And so this actually is a very telling passage that indicates that the early church was worshiping on Sunday. And then remember in Revelation, when John was on the island of Patmos, it says he was worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day. You know, there's actually one other, and that's here in John 20. If you look down at verse 26... It says, after eight days, the disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them, and Jesus came. Now, eight days, you count the first Sunday, and then the next Sunday, there's your eight days. And so they're gathered here on Sunday again, a week later. Now, the first time, it makes sense. It's still part of the feast, right, with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It makes sense they were together. But the next Sunday, the feast is over. They should be working on Sunday, but they're not. They're gathered together to worship. So as we look at some of these passages and put all this together, um, this is why we've made this change. And it's a huge change. Uh, For thousands of years, they did it on Saturday, and now we do it on Sunday. And so here's just a a brief word here in this way. Um, Now, back to our verse then. It says, next, that the doors were shut. Actually, that word for shut assumes that it's also locked, too. And so the door wasn't just shut, it was locked, it was secure, and that's because they were afraid. They were afraid of the Jews. Now remember, of course, uh, just a few days before, they they ran and they hid. Remember, 
Peter cut off the ear of a servant, and, and uh, everybody's afraid. Peter then denied Jesus as well. Are they going to be arrested? And we read from Matthew 28, and Joe just referred to this in his, his prayer. Uh, the rumor was already beginning to spread that the disciples had stolen the body. And so maybe that's also why they're afraid. But as you put all this together, they're locked behind closed doors. And it tells us that the disciples were there. Notice this would include the apostles. So you have 10 of them here, right? Because remember, Judas is dead and Thomas is not there this first time. And uh, then there would be other disciples. So maybe some of the women, maybe Jesus' mother was there. It doesn't tell us, but there were other disciples. Now, for all these details, we come then to the main point. Jesus came and stood in their midst. Jesus came. He appeared. Now, even though the doors were shut, he came. So another kind of side point Do you see how Jesus could pass through walls, basically? The resurrected body is different than our body. It's the same body, but it can do more than our regular bodies can do. Now, the question is, was this unique to Jesus, or is this something we'll be able to do someday when we have a resurrected body? We don't know that for sure. But again, this isn't really the focus. We find this very interesting and intriguing. And, you know, we talk about extra dimensions and all these things to try to explain it. And maybe all that's true. But the main point is, Jesus came. He appeared to them. You know, remember as we talked about this morning, for those of you who are here at the the early service, for Paul, this was absolutely essential. This really happened. Jesus actually came and appeared to the apostles and to the disciples. Notice also, he doesn't just show up, he speaks. He says, peace be with you. This isn't an apparition. This is actually Jesus. He is real. He could talk. And then, as you look at verse 20, it says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Again, this isn't a ghost. This is Christ raised from the dead. All right, now, let's turn to Luke 24 here a moment. And, of course, we looked at some things earlier this morning. Let's look now especially at uh, this section in Luke, because Luke and John say the same things, but John says some things Luke doesn't, and Luke says some things that John doesn't. And so as we put it together, we'll more fully understand what happened. So in Luke 24, look down at verse 36. It says, Now as they said these things, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said to them, Peace to you. And now notice, John gave us a little more information there. But now it switches, and Luke says more. Verse 37, But they were terrified and frightened, and supposed they had seen a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Behold my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Handle me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see I have. So obviously John doesn't say all that, but Luke elaborates here on these things. And once again, they're not just seeing some ghost here. You know, this isn't Casper or something like that, right? You know, this isn't uh, something you'd see on Harry Potter. You know, this, this is Jesus for real, alive. And it says that he showed them his wounds. Uh, 
the wounds on his hands and his feet, as well as his side. And this then uh, proved to them this it was really he. And so notice here, Luke also says he invited them to touch. Hey, not just look, but even touch him. You can't touch a ghost. Now, let me uh, briefly mention this. Uh, you might remember I've said before that the word for hand can also include the wrist. And when it comes to the crucifixion, it certainly means the wrist. Because when they crucified someone, they put the nail right here. And that way, when they lifted them up, they would stay there. If they put the nail here in the hand, it would just pull right out and they wouldn't stay up there. And so he showed them literally his wrists and showed them the wound and is now healed. Of course, both hands and then the feet even showed him aside, right? Remember, they stabbed him to make sure if he was actually dead or not. And, and he showed him that. And Remember, he had wounds in his head from the crown of thorns. He had wounds on his back from the flogging. Um, they pulled out his beard and slapped him. Maybe they broke his nose or something like that. Maybe he had bruises on his kneecaps when he was trying to carry the cross before um, someone else did. Um, but basically, he showed him, look, this, it's me. Hey, hey, it, it, this isn't a ghost. This isn't anybody else. Now, notice what also Luke says now in verse 40. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. But while they still did not believe for joy and marveled, he said to them, Have you any food here? So they gave him a piece of broiled fish and some honeycomb, and he took it and ate in their presence. Okay. So he, he shows them, but they're still not quite sure. And so he says, okay, give me something to eat. Ghosts don't eat. Okay. Uh, ghosts may slime you, you know, in some movies or whatever, but they're, they're not going to eat like this. No, not for real. And so notice the point then. This Jesus could be heard. He could be seen. He could be touched. So he talked. He was felt. He ate. Jesus had actually risen from the dead. Now it's interesting that John really emphasizes this because as uh, we turn back here to John and in the previous chapter, he is the one who emphasized that Jesus was stabbed in the side. And we know actually medically that if you're stabbed in the heart and you're still alive, if you're passed out, looks like you're dead, but if you're still alive, you're only going to bleed out, right? The blood's going to come. But if you've actually died, then a little bit of blood will come, but also a clear fluid. Okay, it looks like water, and that's what happened with Jesus. He truly died. He didn't just pass out uh, on the cross. And now, John is emphasizing, along with Luke here, he actually rose from the dead. Notice also this point. The disciples were afraid. They weren't even thinking about stealing the body. And when they heard that Jesus rose from the dead, they didn't believe it. When Jesus was standing in front of them, they didn't believe it right away. This idea that the disciples stole the body doesn't make any sense. Furthermore, no crucified person would ever be able to exit the tomb on his own. If you've studied anything about crucifixion or even flogging, many people died from flogging. And with the crucifixion, there's no way you would have the strength to push a massive, whatever, three or four or five foot in diameter stone out of the way. Okay? Obviously, you couldn't pass through walls. 
And how in the world could you convince someone that you were risen from the dead if you're sweating from fever and your wounds are just filled with all kinds of infection and so forth? He was healed. And so all of this is proving that Jesus truly had risen from the dead. Now, as I've said on other occasions, and just recently here in Romans verse 4, remember, theologically, we die because we're sinners. But Jesus died not for his sin, for our sin. And because he was sinless, he had to rise from the dead. It was a necessity, and he did. And he rose victorious, he rose healed, he is alive, and he has conquered sin and death and secured our salvation. Now, John, or excuse me, Luke emphasizes that um, they were unsure, they had joy and uncertainty mixed together, they're not fully convinced, but John here says they were glad when they saw the Lord, so he emphasizes the end result. It might have taken a few hours for them to get there as Jesus explained things, but in the end, they came to faith. So notice now what Jesus does. He starts first by saying, look, I am here, I am alive. And as we talked about this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, right, we, we need to believe this. And there's abundant evidence for this. But notice how Jesus now shifts to giving us a responsibility. In verse 21, it says, So Jesus said to them again, Peace to you, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. You see how he repeats himself. He said the same thing in verse 19. And in fact, if you look down at verse 26, he'll say it again, Peace to you. Now, this is the normal Hebrew greeting. Shalom Aleichem is what they would say. Peace to you. Um, And on the one hand, it's a hi, good to see you kind of statement. But obviously, Jesus means more than that here. And first of all, he is saying, don't be afraid. Be at peace. Remember, they're hiding behind locked doors and so forth. Be at peace. And as we saw in Luke's account, they're afraid they saw a ghost. And he's like, no, it's okay. Be at peace. I'm raised from the dead. Okay. But now that he says it again here, it suggests to us that he means something more. Let's turn a moment to uh, Romans chapter 5. And at this turning point in Paul's letter to the Romans, he begins chapter 5 with these significant words. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he says next, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope in the glory of God. So as Jesus continues and transitions to this commissioning, he first says, look, you're at peace with God. Not just don't be afraid, but I have secured peace. For you. Okay? God is no longer angry with you for your sin. God is no longer ready to strike you down and cast you into eternal damnation because of your sin. No, now there's peace. I have paid for your sins. 
Your sins are forgiven. And now you can live forever with God. You'll be raised in the end to be with God forever. There is peace now. We're, We're friends. We are his children. And so the repetition of these words causes us to say he means something more than just don't be afraid. I'm not a ghost. Don't be afraid of the Jews, but I have secured your peace. Peace with God. Which then he transitions right into the next part. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. I have been sent. I have accomplished this peace. You now have peace with God. And so now you need to go tell others about this peace too. I am sending you out with this message. The message that I have been raised from the dead. The message that I have secured peace and salvation and the forgiveness of sins. And so earlier this morning and the first part of this section here now is emphasizing he really did rise from the dead. But now, you might say the focus turns to us. This is the responsibility that he has now given to us as his people. Don't just say, I'm at peace with God and hoard it all to yourself. Let's now go. He has given us this responsibility. He has sent us in this way. So in our studies of Acts, obviously we've talked about this. Even just recently here in Romans 1 about the work of an apostle, we've talked about this recently. But many people will say that this brief statement here is John's version of the Great Commission. So let's turn to Matthew 28 here just a moment. We read this passage uh, earlier this morning. And uh, so let me again read verses 19 and 20 of Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so we've been sent. As Christ was sent by his Father, so too we have been sent. We, of course, are not going to provide salvation for anyone, but we are now sent with this message to make disciples, baptizing and teaching. Now notice how here in Matthew... Jesus ends by saying that I'll be with you always. And that is fulfilled with the giving of the Holy Spirit. When the Spirit is given, now Christ is with us here in that way. So not surprisingly then, as we come back to John 20, no, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And so the connection here is very intentional. And so as the prophet has come, he is now appointing his prophets, us, the mouthpieces, to go forth. But he doesn't leave us to do it by ourselves. He's given us his spirit to enable us. All right, now notice um, how it says here, he breathed on them. Let me read for you here just a moment. This is Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. The language used here in John 20 is very intentional. It's calling us back here to Genesis chapter 2. As God breathed life into Adam, 
So now Jesus is breathing his spirit into his disciples. There are actually many things here that we could talk about, about this uh, verse alone. But let me uh, mention a few of them and highlight the main points. First of all, let me mention this. The Spirit didn't just show up at Pentecost. Sometimes you'll hear people say, Boy, isn't it nice that we live on this side of Pentecost? We now have the Holy Spirit. You know, the people in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit back then. I've actually heard people say that. But that's not what we see in the Scriptures. We see the Holy Spirit in Genesis 1, verse 2. We see the Holy Spirit in a variety of passages in the Old Testament. And notice here, the Spirit is given even prior to Pentecost. Okay, Roughly 50 days prior to Pentecost. And so, the church did not begin at Pentecost. The Spirit didn't just show up at Pentecost. The Spirit's been there from the beginning. In fact, the church began in the Garden of Eden. Um, But here, the emphasis is Jesus is sending his Spirit. He's breathing the Spirit, sending him uh, to the disciples. Now, this too raises a bunch of questions. Did the Father send the Spirit? Did the Son uh, send the Spirit? Well, they both did. Uh, Here, this one's emphasizing that Jesus did. Uh, We could look at John 16 and 15 and 14, where both the Father and the Son send the Spirit. But the emphasis is is on this point, okay, twofold. If you look at John 14 here just a moment, you remember these words of Jesus. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And then back in John 1, at the very beginning, Uh, We see in verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. And so here is Jesus now, breathing this life through the Spirit into his disciples so that they could come to life spiritually. And so, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, we are now new creations. As we've talked about in Romans here recently, This is the idea of calling. It's the spirit that calls us to life. Like Jesus called Lazarus, so the spirit calls us to life. So by breathing on them, he's giving them this life by the spirit. And this is true for any believer. We are dead in our sins, but God sends us his spirit and makes us alive spiritually so that we can respond in faith and repentance. But then to the main point, it seems here, (laughs) that is receive this Holy Spirit so that you can go out and do this job that I've given to you. Christ doesn't just give us a job and leaves us to fend for ourselves. He's with us by his spirit residing within us. And we then have the ability to go forth with this message of the gospel. And as Dale was uh, emphasizing in Sunday school, to spread the gospel also means to defend the faith, to be offensive and defensive in our apologetics. It's not just saying you're a sinner and you need Jesus, right? It, there's a lot that can go into this. It doesn't have to be complicated, but certainly there's a lot that, that we are to do. Um, and so the Spirit, like he came at Pentecost to equip them, so here now the Spirit is given to equip them for this work. 
we have this same spirit. This wasn't unique to the apostles or the disciples of the first century. The same Holy Spirit has been given to believers today. We are no less blessed in this way. And so we've been given the same command, the same commission. We've been given the same spirit to enable us to do this work. Now let me highlight this one last point here in this context. Remember, it's the disciples who were assembled. It's the disciples that he breathed upon, not just the apostles. Okay. So this isn't just a work for someone like myself or some other leader in the church or a missionary. Yes, we have a special responsibility. But all of us as believers have been given the Spirit and given this commissioning. And so let us go forth and let us obey Christ and let us tell others about him. As he has come to secure peace, hey, let us go tell others about this peace that Christ has made made for his people. All right, now let's look at verse 23. This is one of those verses you're like, well, what does this mean? If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Okay. <clears throat> this almost sounds like we're given this great power. We can send someone to hell if we don't like them or something. You know, but No, that, that's not what's being said here. Literally, the verse reads this way. If you might forgive the sins of anyone... They have been forgiven. If you may continually retain the sins of anyone, they have been retained. Now, why is that important? Well, it's important because ultimately God is the one behind all of this. Only God for, can forgive sins. We cannot forgive sins. That's the, only God can do that. Remember, the religious leaders were all upset when Jesus said he could do that. Okay. And so the have-been language here points ultimately to the fact that God is the one doing the forgiving. So we could say it like this, right? If you forgive the sins of anyone, their sins have already been forgiven by God. If you retain the sins of anyone, their sins have already been retained by God. Ultimately, this is pointing to God being in charge, his electing grace, his decree. All right, but we still have a responsibility here, don't we? we? We're the ones forgiving and retaining here in this verse. How is that the case? Well, look at verse 21. We have been sent, we've been given the Spirit, and we've been given this responsibility. In the gospel message, we are telling people, if you believe in Jesus, your sins are forgiven you. If you don't believe in Jesus, then your sins are not forgiven. That's basically what the verse is saying here. Okay? So, if you believe in Christ, if you trust in him as God, if you trust that Jesus has come to obey God's law for you, if you are looking to Jesus to take the punishment for your sins on the cross, if you believe that, Your sins are forgiven you. That's a promise. That's what God tells us. And when we tell others that, 
right? This is what he's talking about here. If someone says they believe, we tell them, your sins are forgiven. You have that blessing. You have eternal life. But if you tell someone these things and they don't believe, then we tell them, you're still in your sins. And you deserve eternal judgment. Because you have rejected God's goodness through Christ. So ultimately, we do not have the power to forgive. We're not like a priest in a confessional or something. We don't have that power. God does. But we do have the responsibility to tell people about forgiveness in Christ and about judgment if they fail to believe. And so in this way, we have then the keys of the kingdom. Let's turn a moment to Matthew and chapter 16. And I bring in this passage because this is another um, uh, passage that says very much the same thing, uses a little bit different language here, but it's very much saying the same thing and also has led to a lot of confusion. (laughs) Here in Matthew 16, this is where Peter has just confessed that Jesus is the Messiah. See that in verse 16. And then in verse 17, Jesus tells him, hey, God enabled you to do this. And then in verse 18, it says, And I say to you um, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth, now here's literally what it says, will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven. We call it a future perfect and all this. But the point is, again, it's emphasizing God's decree. But you see, it's the same basic idea. Whether you're forgiving sins or retaining sins, whether you've been given the keys to bind and to loose, it's the same overall point. And initially, Jesus says, Peter's been given this responsibility. And obviously, right, he, he's the first one to confess Christ as the Messiah. He is the one to preach that first sermon at Pentecost. And he's the one telling the religious leaders, um, <clears throat> your sins are still retained. You're not believing. And later, of course, he's the first to preach to a Gentile, to Cornelius in Acts 10. And so in that sense, Peter is primary. But if you turn to Matthew 18 and verse 18, it says, Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Now, who's Jesus talking to here? Who is you? Well, if you look all the way back in verse 1, it's the disciples, not just Peter, and not just the apostles either. In fact, in verse 17, it talks about the church. The point is, this is a responsibility that's been given to all believers. And again, we're not saying, nope, you can't get into heaven. I don't like you. It's not that authority. God has that authority. Hey, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. God can do that. But we have the authority to tell others that their sins are forgiven, that they are loosed from their sin. They can access heaven. The door is opened because we have the key, and that key is the gospel message that we share with others. Okay. And so that's what John is talking about. That's what Matthew is talking about, of course, in both places, quoting Jesus. 
So as we gather here today, this morning, we are remembering the resurrection of Christ. And we are saying, look, this really happened. But we also have been given this task. We've been given this commission. We have been sent. And so let's do this. Let's proclaim Jesus to those around us. It's not just my job. It's all of us. Let us tell others about Jesus. Let's tell them that there's a forgiveness of sins. Let us command people to believe. Remember what we talked about last week in Romans 1 verse 5. It's a command. But there is this promise of peace if you believe. And so I end here then with these questions. First of all, do you actually believe this? Okay, we come here. In one sense, it's easy to say we believe it. Do we really? Okay, do you believe that Jesus rose from the dead? And died for your sins and secured peace. If so, your sins are forgiven. And heaven is yours. But if you haven't believed this, repent of your sins now. Because if you don't, heaven is locked to you. And judgment awaits. But then the next set of questions is simply this. If you do believe, hey, are you obeying Christ's commands here by going forth in the power of the Spirit that he has given to tell others about this peace, about this forgiveness? We must. Hey, we don't have to go to seminary to do it. Any of us can do this. And he has given us this responsibility. And so a few words here this morning then from this passage in John 20. Let's pray together. Our Father, our God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you that you have sent forth your Son to live obediently, to die as our substitute, and then to rise from the dead, conquering sin, conquering death, conquering our old man, conquering Satan, being victorious over all these things, and being then the first to rise from the dead, where we can then follow in his steps someday. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for this. We confess uh, that uh, you have been raised from the dead. But Lord, we also then ask that by your Spirit, you would, you would come upon us, enabling us, equipping us to do this task that you have given to us. Help us to go and to make disciples. Help us to spread this message of peace and forgiveness in Christ. Give us strength and boldness to to bind and to loose, to uh, forgive and to retain. In the way that we've talked about here this morning, we, uh, we pray for your enabling in this. And we pray, Lord, that you would use us then to extend your kingdom and to bring others to faith. And so, uh, Lord, again, we thank you that we can celebrate these truths here today. And uh, may we, as we go our separate ways and probably do family things and and other events, especially here today, may we um, uh, just meditate on these truths and may it motivate us as we go forth here the rest of the week to labor for you and that you would be honored and glorified in all of it. We pray all these things then in Jesus' name. Amen.